0: 6349 or slash Portland. On this episode of the podcast, we have Dr. Samuel Metz. Did I say that right? You're right. All right. And uh, so Samuel and I met briefly back in when I was running for state representative. He's a, uh, a resident of District 36. And we had probably an hour conversation about healthcare and single payer healthcare in, in particular. And so, uh, Samuel, why don't you just uh, go ahead and give us a little bio of who you are and what your your involvement with Single Payer is, and go ahead.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate being here with the two of you. Uh, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and stumbled into medicine, interrupted my college desire to influence public policy through writing and speaking, after a 40-year hiatus in the woods, I came back <laughs> to public policy. Uh, what stimulated me was a conversation in the surgeon's lounge. I'm an anesthesiologist talking about why American healthcare care costs so much. Well, I was absolutely adamant it was end-of-life care. And I had people around me saying, no. It's not end-of-life care. It's patients demanding too much money. And someone else says, no, it's us. Fee for service. We want more fees. We give more service. And someone else says, no, we got to get the government out of health care. Someone said, no, we got to get the government into health care. <laughs> and I realized two things. Um, nobody knew what they were talking about. and It's fairly I didn't. common. Fairly common. <laughs> <laughs> and even deeper, I didn't know what I was talking about. So mm. I went quiet for a while, trying to figure out which one of these viewpoints is legitimate. Sure, And that's the trail that brought me into better care to more people for less money as a goal and single payer is a way to get there.
0: Okay. And so you sit on several boards um, and you're involved in different committees and stuff that that look into this, correct?
1: Uh, Yes. I'm a member of two organizations one is uh, physicians for national health program which and the other is i'm a founding member of mad as hell doctors <laughs> sort of the uh, local uh, knee-jerk screwball end of oregon <laughs> physicians for <laughs> national health program both of these organizations advocate for universal care generally and single payer is the way to get there I have been on the Oregon Medical Association's Task Force for Access to Healthcare. I served on a committee, uh, chaired by Representative Salinas here in Oregon, the Universal Access to Healthcare Committee, created by the late Mitch Greenlick. And I'm currently on the Senate Bill 770 Single Payer Task Force. Uh, this is gubernatorially appointed, Senate approved. There are 12 of us healthcare advocates uh, working hard to create a to design a single payer system that would work in Oregon.
2: So I was going to say, I'll say just as a as a Republican, as a conservative, I not opposed. I would go so far to say I support universal access to healthcare. If if not universal healthcare, at least universal access to health care. Have it available to anybody who so desires. Um and I, I feel like there would be a lot of umbrage on the side of the right with single payer as the way to get there. Can I just ask, how how would you define single payer healthcare and what what about that makes you feel that that is in fact the way to ensure every human gets access to healthcare coverage?
1: It's a good, it's good to get some of these terms distinguished. Uh, if we think of healthcare in, let's say, Oregon as a pipeline through which flows every year about $40 billion from the people who pay for it, patients, taxpayers, sometimes both, and then it comes out the other end and it goes to providers. When we talk about how money comes out and goes to providers, we're asking questions like who gets which provider gets paid how much for what condition under what circumstances to which patients? These are delivery questions. Examples are fee-for-service, capitated funds, global funds. But if we're at the other end, how does money come in? That is, who participates? Who pays? How do we collect? That's called finance. Single-payer is a form of getting money into the system okay now, uh, around the world we see two ways uh general ways of getting money into the system one is universal health care and the other is chaos the, <laughs> the u.s is the only high income system that uses chaos every other high income system uses one of two subsets Either a multi-payer system in which everyone pays into a healthcare system and they choose, can be private or public, or everyone pays into a single system in the form of taxes and then these two payers pay all the providers. Just to define one more term, socialized medicine means that everything that goes into the system is controlled by the government. So it's all paid for by taxes. But it also means that everything that comes out is also controlled by the government. Everybody who provides health care has a government ID patch. Hmm. There's only two examples of that. In the entire world, it's pretty scarce. One is Cuba, and the other is the American VA. Hmm. It's an extreme example of single payer. I don't know of any of my fellow single payer crazies who advocate that we go to a VA system. So that we, we do have government making sure that all the money comes in mm-hmm. and pays but the providers are all a mixture of public and private. Okay. Interesting.
0: Yeah. So I think we mentioned a little bit before the podcast that a lot of our viewers, you know, skew conservative. We are, you know, do you have Republican in the name of the podcast after all? Um, so the, the goal of this is to provide more care, more better care to more people for less money. Um, I think a lot of people, so first of all, don't really think that there's a problem. And second of all, are very hesitant to get more government involved in their life. Um, I, that's kind of my knee-jerk whenever I hear more government is uh, is they they tend to in my in my very partisan view cause more problems than they solve. And you can usually solve problems by removing government rather than adding more government to to a situation. Um, I do think that healthcare might be an exception to that rule. And being that (laughs) Nick and I were talking about this yesterday, um, price elasticity of healthcare. Um, so basically furious amounts of podcast listeners are (laughs) and the others are logging off. Um, so basically price elasticity is how, how, if you change the price of a good or service, how many people will then continue to pay for that service and generally the higher the price, the fewer people end up buying it, you know, for any TVs or apples or, you know, a massage or, you know, fill in the blank, the higher the price, fewer people are going to, are going to buy it. Um, healthcare is inelastic in, in most healthcare, a lot of healthcare in that the higher the price goes, people are still going to pay for it. If you have a life saving treatment, and it costs one dollar, or it costs a billion dollars, and that's going to save your life. You're going to pony up the cash. I mean, there's a few examples of you know maybe that's not the case, but for the most part, the price doesn't really matter. People are going to pay whatever it, whatever it costs, and so the free market system as applied to healthcare really doesn't work all that well. And so that's kind of how I backed into this uh, of thinking of. You know, maybe there's a different option where the government could get involved and cause a or create a better system where you don't just have whoever's deciding the price just keeps jacking up the price for because they know people will pay it. So, Mm -hmm. Uh, Nick, you're right. This uh, There are people
1: out there already typing (laughs) (laughs) furiously. Healthcare reform is the. Second leading cause of bar fights in America today. <laughs> is It is incredibly complex. Yeah. yeah, One out of, nearly one out of every $5 that all of us spend today is going to flow through the healthcare industry in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest industry in the United States. It's the biggest industry in the world. If the Saudi Arabian princes said, we're going to pay for your healthcare. All of the revenue we get from selling oil, we're going to give to U.S. healthcare. They couldn't pay for a quarter of what we spend. Mm-hmm. And as you just as you just noted, James, this is it. Doesn't follow the usual you uh, uh, rules of economics. As the cost mm-hmm. of healthcare goes up, the need for healthcare doesn't change. Yep, and. There are people who say to themselves, I'm okay, my family's okay, I have an insurance policy, don't touch it. Mm-hmm. It can only get worse. And it's easy to sympathize with these
0: people. Well, as a, as a small business owner now, I recognize that when, that healthcare being tied to employment is... It, it, when, I was, when I was working for Intel... I didn't think about my health insurance because it just it was part of my package. I if I ever went, had to go to the hospital, I showed him my card and you know it figured itself out. But now that I am self-employed, I have to now pay for it. And fortunately I'm on I'm on my wife's plan, but for a while there I was paying my own health insurance and it is expensive. And this is from a guy huh? who doesn't go to the doctor. I mean, I'm spending hundreds of dollars a month to not go to the doctor um, because I need Essentially, cat- catastrophe insurance. You know, if I'm gonna, you know, stub my toe or something, I I'm probably not going to go to the doctor. Or if I could just pay for it out of pocket, if I get in a car accident and just have to spend a month in the hospital, you know, that's that's really what I was paying for. It, Plus, the ACA required me to pay for it. So,
1: <laughs> it, if it feels weird that you as an employer or when you were an employee participated in a plan in which your employer or you as the employer were expected to pick the benefits and the providers for your employees. If That felt weird. It is. We're the only country
0: in the world that does this. And it discourages innovation because if you're like me and want to quit your fancy corporate job to start a business... That's like one more expense that you have to pay, and not just for you, but for your, your potential employees. And until you get to, unless you're Jeff Bezos and started Amazon, you know, that those first few years are rough uh, financially.
1: Uh, and it's even rougher on the employee. The average worker in the U.S. who enters the workforce at 18 can expect to change jobs more than 10 times in their career. So if we're dependent upon our employer to provide employment, that's about, you got a greater than 50, 50 chance that whatever your insurance is today for you and your family is not going to be the same in three years. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the U S in normal countries where you can drink the water outside the U (laughs) S uh, your bond with your insurance company, whether it's private or public, is forever. Now, in the U.S., one year you might have one employer-sponsored insurance. Another year you might have another employer-sponsored insurance. Another year you might have COBRA. Another year you might be uh, on the thousands. exchange. Yeah. On the on the next year you might be off the exchange on an individual. Uh, next year you might be... Uh, uninsured, next year you might be on Medicaid, and the next year you might be on Medicare. Every one of those changes makes a difference in how much it's going to cost you, what benefits you're going to get, what conditions are covered, how much your drugs are going to cost, what drugs you can get, what physicians you can see, what nurses you can see, what hospitals you can go to. That
0: churn costs a lot of money. A lot of heartache and stress and everything else too. And
1: remember, every, in the US, every billable event in healthcare has to be examined by someone who's not wearing a white coat or a stethoscope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, an insurance agent, we call them bureaucrats in the government, but <laughs> even privately. Term. Yeah has to assess that claim for was the patient in network, was the condition covered, was the treatment covered, was the pre-authorization, was the physician in the network, and then they have to do this repeated 30% of the time because the normal insurance company denies 30% of all first claims. And then, by the way, there are 4 billion medical claims each year in the U.S.
2: 4 billion.
1: You can imagine how many person hours are involved in evaluating that. That doesn't include the money and the lost time I spend as a physician trying to collect from the insurance company. That adds 10% to my cost of business. What does this mean? When we have private insurance, when you're an employee or an employer of that money, 20% of it is consumed by the insurance company
0: mm-hmm.
1: for administration. And then another 10% are consumed by poor schlubs like me hmm. who have to build the insurance companies. The US is unique in this 30% loss before any of the money is spent on healthcare. How does that compare internationally? It's twice as much as anybody in second place, and it's three times as much as a normal high income. Nation, If we switch to a universal care plan, single-payer or multi-payer, overnight, we would recover approximately $700 billion in administrative work that we don't need to pay for anymore. And that would be more than enough to meet the unaddressed needs to provide better care to more people for less money than we're paying now.
0: So this is one of the things that we brought up on our, our phone call a year ago is if you get rid of all that money, 30% of how many trillions of dollars is being spent on healthcare. That's, that's jobs. You're essentially getting rid of an entire industry, which is health insurance, which I mean, there, there are libertarian, uh, <laughs> reasons for not wanting that much waste in the system, but you've got that's, that ends up being two million jobs of people that could be winked out of existence. Um, so th- I mean that I mean it's something respect, something you have to think about. That and I'm just bringing it up for argument's sake. Strikes me as a broken window
2: fallacy kind of thing. That's which if our, if any of our listeners aren't familiar, the the or idea. Or they just that,
0: want to start googling again. Or DR just
2: DR, <laughs> you haven't googled something for 45 seconds now. But the idea is that we should all just break all of our windows because that keeps window repairmen in business, and that way you know it keeps an industry floating and functioning. And I don't think somebody like you who's successful in the field of medicine, we've never said that this is, you know, demonizing undertakers or making it harder for undertakers to make a living because fewer people are dying. And I I mean, I think that that's right. And I think that there's, it's, it's not certainly something to consider. It's something we'd have to deal with is
0: all I'm saying. It's something we'd have to deal with.
2: Yeah. But at the same, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing.
0: Sure. Sure.
1: Well, it, it's a legitimate question to bring up. And your number of about 2 million is consistent with, the projected, there are about 60 single-payer studies in the U.S. looking at state or national plans. And they all say there are going to be hospital billers out of work. There will be insurance agents out of work. uh, And the numbers are larger. And those people have lobbyists. They do. (laughs) (laughs) Now, some of these studies go on to look at not just jobs lost, but jobs created. So now we've got an industry in which the demand suddenly shoots up, people who have never gotten primary care before or who have delayed care or have conditions that haven't been covered before now pour into the healthcare system. Uh, How many more jobs will be created to handle this influx? Uh, There have been fewer studies that look at new jobs, but the estimate is anywhere from one and a half to three times as many new jobs will be created as jobs lost. Hmm. Now, each one of these, every single-payer study that I'm aware of, sorry, any single-payer proposal, including the few in Oregon, None of them have been passed or implemented, by the way, uh, have provisions for retraining. So let's suppose I'm in an insurance company and I get my pink slip. There are funds available for retraining. Now, I'm not going to be retrained into an X-ray technician overnight, But there are funds available. I know that I'm moving into a market where the number of vacancies is one and a half to three times the number of people who are now looking. And I know that while I search for a new job, my family will get health care while I look. Now, when we're reengineering the biggest industry in the world, that's about as soft a landing as we can plan on. And as you you mentioned, Nick, sometimes the people who repair broken glass, they should be working on computer repair or something that's... Uh,
2: Learn C++ or uh, <laughs> something like that. Learn, so, you, you know, f- drive for Uber or something like we, that.
0: We mentioned in our kind of discussion right before the podcast that a lot of people in Oregon, a lot of Republicans in Oregon and probably throughout the country uh, just do not trust the government at all. We were talking about the Mike Newman situation and how <laughs> a lot of uh, rural Republicans in particular, probably maybe rural Democrats as well, but uh, they don't want a government that works for them because their view of the government is that the government can do nothing right. It can only harm. And so what they want from their government is somebody who throws sand in the gears and gums everything up and so what we're discussing here is adding an entire, like a huge amount of government control over one of the you know, biggest parts of a lot of people's lives um, do you have anything, what would you say to those people that just do not trust the government um, the government
1: needs to do a lot of work to regain its lost trust I don't have any magic for anything other than health Sure. When we look at the free market in providing health insurance, you've just heard there's the industry has a 20% loss in money before mm-hmm. it gets turned into health care. Government programs for health care, the VA, TRICARE for Veterans, SCHIP, chip Indian Health Service. These healthcare organizations have administrative costs that are one-fifth to one-tenth that of private industry. So regardless of what we think about the government providing education or fixing highways or providing security, when it comes to healthcare, the government record is five to ten times better than private industry. Hmm. And the studies show that People who get their health care through any of the government programs, on average, cost less, even though they're sicker patients, their satisfaction is higher, and they're more likely to get care. Let's not talk about education. Let's not talk about everything else (laughs) the government could possibly screw up. Let's just talk about health care. Sure. Now, there's another aspect to what's going on, which is writing a check. Most people like me, really would have a hard time adding up how I pay for healthcare. Because I'm paying for health care, maybe in a self-funded fan plan, my employer's paying for my health care. I'm paying taxes that go to health care. I'm p- paying premiums. I'm paying out of pocket payments. I'm paying surprise bills. I don't have a good number for what that is. There's an average out there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When I see how much that adds up to it's a heck of a lot of money the average person is paying in Oregon close to eleven thousand dollars a year in health care Now that's the average most of us pay much less sick people pay much more but we never know when we're going to be that sick person we don't know when our child's gonna fall out of a tree or our spouse is gonna get cancer or we're gonna have a heart attack or our car is gonna get t-boned or we're gonna have the expensive viral disease the analogy is if you had to write a check for everything you're paying out of pocket now and instead of addressing it to 600 different places you made one check to the single payer fund you'd actually be paying less money not only would you be paying less money and maybe a little bit maybe 5% less you'd know that you'd never go bankrupt paying for a treatable disease your family will never be turned away for treatment, no matter what your credit rating is, and you can plan as a business person. You have a five and ten year plan because you know what your business expenses are going to be. That's normal in other countries, by the way. Mm-hmm.
2: So I, I was going to say I'd be curious, and to uh, James to kind of follow up on your point a little bit. We had a, we had a uh, an experiment in. Taking the, allowing the government to take more control over the healthcare industry. We had the ACA around 12 years ago now, 11 years ago, and since the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, administrative costs have gone up, the share of GDP, or the share, the the cost of healthcare as a percentage of GDP has continued to go up in this country. We still see things like people being denied treatment. We still see things like medical bankruptcies. And uh, in in an article that you sent us that you wrote, you called uh, the ACA. A giant leap in place, which I thought was a really great line. <laughs> um, and especially, uh, it, you know, for somebody who follows public policy, that, that is the, the one signature item on the, in the Obama administration. They, they did not combat climate change. They did not combat, you know, any kind of nefarious international relations, the Putin and Putin regime. That this was the thing that they, they were going to try to ride high on. And it at best has led to hopefully less good results than what they were hoping for is it is it just a matter of the government did not take enough control the government did not go far enough or what was it about the aca that's failed to live up to your standards that that has led you here today to say you know we need to continue to to take more steps
1: i'm going to get to that first I want to say something clever. In public policy, there are three ways to approach any public policy program. We can keep doing the same thing we've been doing and hope for a different result. You know, there's there's a medical diagnosis for that condition. We can experiment, try things that have never been tried before in medicine, never been shown to produce better care to more people for less money, and hope they work. And the last is, look at the places, look at the healthcare systems that already do better than we do in terms of better care to more people for less money and learn. The Affordable Care Act is an example of same old, same old. It changed the rules, but U.S. healthcare is still a zero-sum game. It's the only way that one person can get better care for less money is for somebody else to get less care for more money. The Affordable Care Act is not an example of a universal care system. It's an example of a knee-jerk government response saying, we'll solve this by spending more money and compelling individuals and businesses to spend more money on private insurance, which is about the most inefficient way of transforming health care dollars into health care. So I join you in your skepticism of the Affordable Care Act. Actually, I'm even more intensely repelled by it. Mm-hmm.
2: You just I, got a, a lot of new <laughs> listeners for us. So we appreciate that. Uh,
1: no one should think that the Affordable Care Act is what a single-payer system should look like.
2: Yeah. Totally makes sense. Um, one of the things I'd be curious for your opinion on is there are there are a number of countries who engage in – more government control of their healthcare systems than what we currently experience. I think a lot of people on the right would say they're socialized medicine. As we've discussed, there's no, there's two true examples of socialized medicine everywhere else is somewhere on the spectrum. I wonder though, what the amount of, uh, in, in a, in a PBS documentary that you had also, you assigned us homework, which I greatly appreciate. We, we need to have more podcast guests who say, no, you, before I come on your show, you need to do something for me. Uh, a, a reporter for PBS went to England, Germany, Taiwan, Japan, and Switzerland, Sweden, Switzerland, it was Switzerland, and talked about essentially how, how healthcare systems in all five countries are different, but about how they are all more efficiently run than the United States. And, I love the idea of uh, this. Is kind of the idea of, of fifty states as laboratories of democracy. As we, you know, we all Oregon can come up with something, and Texas can come up with something, and at a national level we can come up with the best. We can do that at a, at an international level too. If Germany has a good idea, we can take it. If India has a good idea, we can take it. If South Africa needs a good idea, we can give it to them. And <laughs> there's there's a lot of people. I think a lot of people on the left who look at a, a lot of other countries. Like the five that I had just mentioned, and say, yeah, there's more taxes. Yeah, they're they're getting better, but they used to have you know some longer wait times. But satisfaction levels are up, costs are way down. There's never a point at which you are uninsured, and those things are all great. And I I'm consider myself very strong conservative, very big Republican. I'm I'm right there with you. I'd love to see costs go down. I'd love to see people not be uninsured. But I I do wonder if it's if it can really end up being an apples to apples comparison as you know switzerland has 8 million people or 10 million people or something like that taiwan has 20 million people something along those lines the taxes that they pay are all markedly higher i mean as you just said it's it's a matter of writing one check to one place versus a lot of checks to a lot of different places net net you'd still save some money but here in the united states i feel like we have unique concerns we are number one in fast food consumption number one in sugar (laughs) consumption i don't know where we rank in exercise but i'm gonna guess it's not gonna be Mm -hmm. super great to say nothing of the fact that we're a country of 330 ish million people spread across four time zones in the continental united states six if you look at alaska and hawaii several more if you look at you know guam and everything is it really is it really realistic to say we can just do you know Control-C, Control-V, and bring a Swiss-style healthcare system over here? Or is it going to be a little bit more involved, a little bit more in-depth, and a little bit more uh, tinkering at the edges?
1: These are good points. The documentary, by the way, is called Sick Around the World. It's a PBS special. It's an hour. It's the best introduction anybody can get to trying to put this together. Second is... No healthcare system ha- is perfect. We could change with Germany or with Malta or Italy or New Zealand. We'd still have problems. We'd have different problems. But if our goal is to provide better care to more people for less money, that is access when you need it, lower total costs, and a better health care system, we could change with anyone, and it would be an improvement. You also mentioned, should we do this on a national level with the hmm, fourth most populous nation on the planet, or should we do it on a state level? There's an interesting story in Canada. The premier of one of their provinces implemented a single-payer plan in his province, Saskatchewan. It was uh, big hue and cry. Not everybody wanted it. He, but he was a determined Presbyterian minister and he said we're going to do it and a few years later everything was calmed down and people were getting better care to more people for less money and the province next door said it was British Columbia said you know they're doing it pretty well we can do it better so they came up with a better single payer system and then it was Alberta he said we can do better than the two of those and then Manitoba And then Ontario. And finally, the federal parliament said, all right, we get the memo. (laughs) Every province has to create its own single-payer system and we will help subsidize it. Consequently, Canada has 14, 15 different single-payer systems. They all provide better care to more people for less money than in the U.S. And that's how they've gotten single-payer to everyone in the country if we were to do that in the u.s you can imagine a similar process oregon creates a single-payer system washington says you know it's working and we can do better and california says they're just a bunch of pansies up there we can do much better (laughs) than that and then wyoming says if you can do it with a 40 million person state We've got 600,000. We can really get this slick. And eventually, Washington will say, Congress will say, will say, single payer works in every state in which it's been tried. What should we do about that? There's no longer a conversation about whether it's feasible. It's a question about, do you have the chutzpah to say, yeah, it works, and everybody should have access to it.
0: Yeah, one of the things I think we talked about on our, on our phone call is yeah, this this I I would be very much more inclined to go with a statewide rather than national for a couple of reasons. I think you mentioned the ACA. I think one of the problems that ran into is that you have five hundred and thirty five different fingers in that pie, and everybody wants something, and everybody wants something different. Whereas if you were to do something like that at in Oregon, you have 90, 90 fingers in the pie, and each one is very directly tied to their district and very directly tied to their to their constituents. I can't imagine a congressperson from, you know, Midwest somewhere cares a whole lot about <laughs> what's going on in Portland, Oregon. Um, so I, I think, and, and this is just me being a, you know, small government, local control conservative, but um, I the other advantage of having a single-payer system as opposed to a... Uh, the, the patchwork that we've got now with private insurance is the ability to negotiate prices. I kind of mentioned that before is that, yeah, the demand stays the same no matter what the prices are. And there have been instances, insulin is one recently that's kind of made the news where prices have shot up for no reason other than someone at the drug manufacturer decided that they would. And so if you have um, a an entire state, you get that the negotiating power of in Oregon, you know, three million, three and a half million different accounts. And you can, you can negotiate with the drug companies to, to lower those prices. You don't quite get the economies of scale that you would at a national level at, you know, 330 million people as opposed to 3 million. But again, you have fewer fingers in the pie. You have fewer people trying to get their pork cut into it. You, I can't imagine what negotiating in Congress is like when you're trying to pass something as big as the ACA. I think it's probably why I didn't do a whole lot. It just, uh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You've, you've identified some very real political problems and some of the agony within our single payer advocacy movement. Do we go national or do, do we go state? And you've mentioned the advantages of going state by state. One is there's one fifth the number of people who all have to take a bite out of it. You know, we know whatever we send into the U.S. Congress, no matter how perfectly it's designed, what comes out the other end looks kind of ugly. And there'll be less uglification going through the state legislature than
0: Congress. 535 amendments all adding something or taking something away. We, yeah. we
1: also have an option here in Oregon, which the U.S. Congress doesn't have. We can have a ballot measure. Hmm. We can design a single-payer system, and it's just as perfect as what we might send to the legislature. But now it's up to the voters. Hmm. And we don't have 4 million people all taking a bite out of it. It's 4 million people all asking the same question. In 10 years from now, will my family be better off with this system? In 10 years from now, will my business be better off? That... I'm pretty confident that we can design a system where an overwhelming majority of Oregonians look at what's written and say, yes. And we can do that. And, you know, no matter how imperfect it is, it'll be better than what we have now. And we'll be showing other states the route.
2: So I think... Healthcare, I think, is interesting because it's. I feel like it's one of the unique debates that we get to have in public policy where there is not a side arguing for the status quo. I feel like in the case of abortion, Republicans want to repeal it. Democrats want to keep it as is. In the case of gay marriage, Democrats wanted to change it. Republicans wanted to keep gay marriage illegal until, you know, four years. Ago. I think I don't think Republicans really care about that right now. But I think there's, there's normally somebody saying things are fine the way that they are. And I think in healthcare, the left has a number of different ideas, and the right has a number of different ideas. Nobody likes where we're at. Nobody thinks this is good. Um, One of the things that I think is unique to American healthcare is doctors tend to make a lot of money. This was also in the the PBS documentary. The salaries are lower for doctors across the country. I think Germany was the one where they specifically talked numbers, but... The, the medical liability, the burden on American doctors is markedly higher. The a number of administrative costs that flow down to an actual doctor as, you know, you just talked about on the podcast, is markedly higher. The amount of student debt that doctors incur and they're on their way to becoming doctors is markedly higher here in America. And I think that as a Republican, I would rather go back and say there's a lot that we can do about all these different issues by themselves and we can address these issues and we can work to improve each separate individual and come up with a better system i would wager that you as somebody on the left say yeah that's something that we could try the better solution is to let's just rip the band-aid off let's just knock this all out one bill massive change. But we know that what we're going to get is better. Do you, do you think that that's accurate or do you think that there's any kind of the piecemeal Republican, let's look at malpractice reform. Let's look at getting costs for borrowing money or costs for college down. Is there any, any merit to, to some of those ideas? No. <laughs> Fair enough.
1: <laughs> what we have is a system that is so chaotic that the dials are on a black box, and nobody knows what they're connected to, no matter what the label says. And just to give you some perspective, if overnight physicians in the United States took a 20% cut in salary, pretty dramatic, we would spend about $50 billion less per year on health care, which is a little over 1.1%. We're not going to cut healthcare costs in half by seeing how little we can pay healthcare providers. Remember, most of the labor spending in healthcare are for people who are working closer to minimum wage. The amount of the labor costs in the U.S. the the doctor percentage of that is very small. We talk about medical malpractice about ten billion dollars a year in. Premiums, another $40 billion a year in defensive medicine. That is things that I do to improve my legal outcome, not things that improve the patient's medical outcome. It's another $50 billion a year, about 1%. The big enchilada is the administration. That's the 30% that it takes to transfer money from a patient to the provider. You would not buy a used car with a 30 percent markup you would not buy a stock you wouldn't buy inventory with a 30 percent markup especially if you know that other nations just as intelligent as we are are paying two-thirds less that's where the money is
0: got it well, we are running about out of time. So I think that's a good place to, to end it. I'm sure we could keep talking about this for hours and hours. So we try to keep these to about 45 minutes. So one of the things we like to do before we uh, end the podcast is, well, typically we we ask people who their favorite Republican is. But um, seeing as how I don't, you do not a registered Republican, um, we'll give you a pass if you wanted to say who your, who your favorite politician is. I like
1: the question about Republican because it, Gets me back to my home. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Democratic family in Phoenix, Arizona. Satan incarnate was Barry, Barry Goldwater, who I have come to admire in retrospect. Mm-hmm. He was a man of intense principles, but he, as he grew older, he used his principles for humanitarian purposes. This is a man... Straightest man you can imagine, Republican to the core, who said they've got a constitutional right to be gay. This is a man who said neither the government nor the church should tell a woman what to do with her body. He was a man who said, we don't want the religious right driving our political agenda because they can't compromise. And to get things done in the U.S., you need to compromise. This is coming from a Republican who Mm -hmm. I was supposed to hate. And I realized that he still was true to his principles, but he understood how he should apply his principles humanely. He also was the one who talked Richard Nixon into resigning. How
0: can you not like that? <laughs> so we have a we it's have a two friend. Two, yeah. We have a friend who uh, is favorite Republican. I don't know who's favorite Republican, but somebody he he looks up to very much is Richard Nixon for interesting reasons. And I think you guys might have a interesting conversation follow up pod. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, that was a great answer. Thank you so much, and um, thanks for coming on the podcast. This has been really informative. And
1: uh, thank you, Nick. Thank you, James. Anytime.
0: All right, and listeners, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.